believe we're dismissing the children's church at this time. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Malachi chapter 2. And if you're willing and able, I'd ask you to stand in reverence to the Word of God as we read it together this morning, beginning in verse 13. And this is another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. Yet you ask, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have acted treacherously against her, though she was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't the one God make us with a remnant of his life breath? And what does the one seek? A godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously against the wife of your youth. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we begin a series of messages on the Christian family and your counsel, your instructions, your commands concerning, Father, how we respond to each other in that setting. Father, help us this morning to turn our attention to what we find in your word, the source of all perfect counsel. And help us, Father, make up our minds ahead of time to discard all of the values of this world and all of the contrary teachings and to begin to please and honor you by doing it your way, that you might bless us and our children. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. We have uh, finished our study of the book of John in December and had some time in the Christmas part of the Bible. And before I get back to preaching and teaching our way in a systematic uh, way through uh, the Word of God. We're starting a new series this morning that we've entitled Ancient Wisdom for the Contemporary Family. Ancient Wisdom for the Contemporary Family. And, and the idea behind all of that is that at the end of the day, it turns out that God has better ideas about how we ought to live our lives than the world does. Amen? Uh, we live in a time of more confusion than there's ever been before. And all kinds of people with all kinds of, uh, of opinions have influenced the way that the American family works. And we were told as, as they were distributing this information to us that if you'll do it this way, it, it'll be much better for you. And then we're starting to watch what's happening in our world and in our nation. And, and the, the evidence is real clear to me that it hasn't worked all that well. Our families are more fragmented now than they ever, ever have been before. And the wisdom, the information, the education, the progressive ideas about how we ought to do what God has uh, called us to do uh, has, has ruined us. As a nation, as a community, it has ruined our children. Too many children are growing up in uh, homes that, that are highly dysfunctional, if not completely broken. And we're paying the price. Our prisons are full of men without fathers. Most of the children that we send to public schools these days are at least way too many of them 
have to be medicated in order to be able to tolerate the educational process. And, and the list of things and, and, and difficulties goes on and on and on. And so we wanted to get into this study and, and kind of try to get people to go back to the Word of God for this kind of information. And we promoted it outside of our own ministry. We, we got on Facebook and, and uh, in an effort to try to draw people in uh, for this particular study, I spent a little time talking about my credentials and I talked about my degrees and I talked about my, um, uh, my credentials as far as uh, mental health and, and addiction therapy and all that other kind of stuff work and all that. But l l when it comes to this, and, and by the way, people ought to want to know who it is they're getting their information from, right? But when it comes to credentials, what, what would be my credentials to actually take on this subject or these topics? I, I had some education. I got a graduate degree and I had to read some books about such things while I was completing my educational process. And there's some helpful stuff in that. Um, a lot of what I know I've learned by observation. You work with enough people, enough families over time, you get a good idea of what works and what hasn't worked so well. And so in some 30 years of working with people in both church and mental health settings, I've been able to observe people in an up close and personal way, what their experiences are with various approaches. And, uh, and I have a lot of experience because I have been married to the same woman for 38 years. Amen? And I know how to mess up as well as anybody I know. Uh, I have learned by experience what works good and what doesn't work too good at all. Uh, and so when I talk about experience, that's mostly what it is. But beyond all of that stuff, when it comes to giving people counsel about how to order their lives and how to operate in a family setting, here's the most important thing. I never give anybody any counsel that does not square with the Word of God. Because I believe that God got it right the first time. And nothing that He's ever told us needs any revision at all. So if what I do is stand before the people of God and give them the Word of God, I'm giving them the best possible counsel outside of all those other considerations. Amen? It worked very well in the years when, in our country, that was the standard that people generally lived by. And the more we've gotten away from God's standard, the more difficulty we have experienced. Amen? Let's, uh, let's get real for just a minute. Marriage and family life is hard. Amen? I know, I'm supposed to stand up here and go, oh, it's just been such a blessing for me to be married all these years and God has given us children and everything's gone wonderfully well and, and, and I just love it. And it has been at times a struggle. There have been wonderful parts and there have been ugly ones too. And if we quit pretending and, and playing the game of acting like everything in our world is perfect and perfectly ordered, if we'll just get a little bit real for a minute, all of us are having those kinds of experiences. Marriage is tough. I tell people all the time, the best thing that you get out of life is a family, and the hardest thing you ever do is live with them. <laughs> Turns out to be true, doesn't it? Well, why is it so hard? 
Because you married somebody that's not the same as you, and that sets you up for interpersonal difficulties. People like to get in front of judges and say, we need you to grant us a divorce. Well, why do I need to do that? We have irreconcilable differences. If you are a man married to a woman, you naturally have irreconcilable differences. Comes with the territory, amen? And then there are the challenges of balancing things like work and family life and all the other demands that might be made on you and all different kinds of environments. There are the financial pressures that we face when we try to figure out how to buy pampers and formula and, and pay all the other bills too. There are uh, social, the, the, the social underpinning. If we try to do it right, there's a lot of people out there doing it wrong that will tell you that you're getting it wrong. Then there are those Christian family ministries that tell you if you love God enough, every day at the same time you will gather around the family table with all of your children, work your way through significant parts of the Word of God, pray together as a family, and never have any arguments. And anybody who is not having that experience goes, what's wrong with me? For the most part, except in very rare circumstances. We are running in and out of our houses at different times. There's more demands made on us than forever before. We are people that uh, husbands and wives work and kids have extracurricular activities. And I don't know about you, but at my house, we don't ever get to the dinner table at the same time every single day. Amen? By the way, that wasn't ever God's plan in the first place. You know what the Bible says? When you're walking along the road, when you're lying down, when you're sitting up, take the spontaneous opportunities to just take advantage of time to share with your family the things of God. Not in a structured way like that indicates. Now, if you can pull that off, have at it. But most people can't. And that doesn't make you a failure, but sometimes the things that people say to us meaning well are not necessarily all that good. Frankly, when we started off, we didn't know it was going to be this hard. Because it was all romance and roses, wasn't it? And I have found the person of my dreams, and I'm going to marry them and take them home, and they're going to make me happy forever. And that's what you thought. I don't ever marry anybody unless I at least have one opportunity to have this conversation, and I call it the life cycle of a marriage. And this is what I explain to them. Now, some of you that have been around a while, if you want to affirm some of what I'm getting ready to say with an amen, it'll help some of the younger folks understand that, that what they're going through is more normal than they thought it is. Amen? It turns out that what gets us to the altar in the first place is a strange combination of love, infatuation, and pure out lust. And we got to have this kind of person, uh, and, um, and we're going to take them home, and they're going to make us happy. And in the beginning, you don't have any money. It's all you can do to figure out how to pay the rent and pay the utilities and buy the groceries and keep a car on the road and all of that other kind of stuff. But you got a partner that you can love up on. And the next thing that happens is kids. And it changes everything. <laughs> All right, we're on a roll now. 
because taking care of an infant and a toddler wears a mama out and the energy that you want to take advantage of no longer exists. Not only that, she remembers what caused this problem in the first place. <laughs> and so things change a little bit at this point. And dad starts feeling a little bit rejected. And he generally responds to that by throwing himself into his work. After all, he's having to try to figure out a way to pay for the pampers and the formula and all that stuff. Who knew that stuff was going to be so expensive? And so he works harder and stays longer. And mom's got the kids and maybe a job too. And somehow or another, he thinks that he deserves to come home and say, I worked hard today, I'm tired. Bring me some tea and get my dinner ready. And would you keep those kids quiet? <laughs> we'll talk about why that's wrong next week. <laughs> Amen? And the two of them start to grow apart for a while lose touch with each other, even resent each other because this ain't the way it was supposed to be. That's how it happens to everybody. After a while, those little boogers get to the place where you can leave them alone for longer periods of time. They sleep in, they don't wake up so much. Da, da, da. And you can start to find each other again. And you start to grow back closer to each other until one of them gets to become an adolescent, a teenager. And now two people who were raised in two different kinds of family have two different kinds of opinions about how we ought to deal with this alien that has taken over the body of our child. And we go to scrapping about that. And one wants to take their head off and the other becomes the referee and defender. And working together in that kind of environment, the child might live. <laughs> if you've worked hard enough at it and given it a good shot, eventually that passes too. Sociologists tell us that the best part of a marriage happens when the last child leaves home and takes the dog with them. And it, uh, by the way, all my life I've heard people whine about the emptiness syndrome. I always thought that was a good deal. <laughs> <laughs> and now, if, if, if you were careful and, and, and fortunate and blessed in your life, you probably have a little more in the way of resources that you did, and you can start doing those things like traveling to exotic locations and and, and putting your feet in the, your toes in the sand and, and all of that kind of stuff and, and enjoying just each other's company in and, and more um, pleasant environments. And that goes on as long as it goes. But eventually, somebody's going to get sick and the other person's going to have to take on the role of caregiver. And that's going to last until somebody is the last one standing. And I just left this on a real negative note, didn't I? 
But that is the life cycle of a marriage. And by the way, it can be interrupted at every point by things that nobody saw coming. There's a lot of good and a lot of joy. So I don't want you to go, well, if I listen to what my preacher said, I'd never get married. No. But this is what I want you to know. Every stage of married life comes with its own special kinds of challenges. It's tough. It's hard. And a lot of people somewhere along the way just give up when they get to one of those ugly parts, those difficult times. It's probable that nobody ever told you that when you started out. And the point of all that is this, marriages do not last because of perfect conditions, perfect choices, perfect personalities, or perfect performance on the one, a part of one or both parties because there's no such thing. All of our marriages will be flawed in one way or another. They will have their challenges. They will be difficult. Some people have an, have an easier time. They're, they're just a little more laid back and, 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 and they're not as high-spirited. That's how, that's how I refer to my wife. My wife is a German woman. Do you know how those people are? And I'm an Irishman. We have struggled with each other. And we had babies. Really, they have, our children have the genetic pedigree of, well, like a pit bull. Some people know what I'm talking about. Um, but we're going to celebrate our 39th anniversary here real soon. And during the holidays and on Saturdays for no reason at all, I'm glad to tell you that my kids still like to come around. And all my grandkids are here. And I have the wonderful blessing of having constant access to all the people that I love and care about. And that is the reward of sticking it out when it's tough and powering through all that stuff. Because you get to the good stuff if you stay long enough. Amen? You sacrifice it on the altar of self if you quit when it gets a little bit tough. You're going to experience unforeseeable imperfections in just about every aspect of your marriage if you stay long enough. So what does the Bible have to offer us in the way of something that makes it possible for us to honor the commitment that we made during our wedding ceremony? Well, let's go back to where we started this morning and see if we can find an answer there. Now, Malachi, as he writes the passage that we read together, writes to people who have become estranged from Israel's God. Uh, and, uh, and, he, and, and basically what they're doing is they're, they have noticed now that God doesn't seem to be as live and as present in their lives as he once was. They're praying and nothing's happening. They haven't seen a move of his hand. Uh, and so they're calling out and they're questioning things. In chapter 1, the first five verses, they question whether God loves them at all. In chapters uh, 1, verse 6 through 14, it says that, that uh, when they came to God and, and when they came to worship and when they brought a sacrifice, what did God say? He said, when you bring an animal, bring a male uh, and, and bring an unblemished one. And Malachi says, and what you've been doing is you've been showing up with 
tore up things, stuff that you don't want. Um, you've, been, you've been offering me less than your best. Their priests had failed to teach the truth of God. They were modifying it so that it was more culturally relevant. They were unfaithful in their relationships with God, each other, and their spouses in chapter 2. They, they just couldn't keep a promise to anyone. They approved of evil and criticized righteousness. They failed to give God his portion of their increase. They regarded service to God as useless. That's a, that's a brief description of what's going on in Malachi. God had reason to be angry with him, and among those complaints, uh, equally important to him was the idea, the passage that we read at the beginning. And God says, look, you have been praying, and it seems like no one's answering. Look at that first verse, verse 13. This is another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. Now, in the passage we just read, he's going to tell us why, but I want you to notice the connection between your experience with God and your experience with your spouse. He makes it real clear that one affects the other. And a lot of people don't clue into that. In verse 14, yet you ask for what reason? Because... The Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have acted treacherously against her, though she was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Now, my Bible says that God cares about all of his children, that there's no male or no female, there's no qualitative difference. God loves all of us. So I can identify myself as a son of God. My wife can identify herself as a daughter of God. And I want to tell you something in case you don't know it. God cares about how you treat his kids. Amen? You let a father or a mother in this congregation find out that one of their married children is being abused by the other one. They won't like it. Amen? In the case of God, men, he cares about how you're taking care of his little girl. Women, the same thing. Our relationship with our spouses has a lot to do, it colors the nature of our relationship to God. And so God said, the reason that your offerings and your prayers and all that kind of stuff, your devotions don't seem to be getting you anywhere is it because I don't like the way you've been treating your wife. And he says in an interesting way, she's your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. By the way, he goes on in the next verse. He said, didn't the one God make, with, make us with a remnant of his life breath? And what does the one seek? What does God want? Godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously against the wife of your youth. And God said, not only does your relationship with your wife impact your relationship with me, but it has a lot to do with the difficulties your kids have. If you won't act right, guess what you pass on to your children? As a legacy. As a heritage. Now, he identifies the problem and, and the one point at which all marriages fail. Now, I know you can get on the internet and you can find the top 20 reasons that marriages fail, but really they all fail for one reason. Just one. You can boil it down to one thing. All marriages fail for just one reason. Let me show you what it is. 
It says, you have acted treacherously against her, and though she was your marriage partner and, the, and your wife by covenant. Now, treachery is a violation of allegiance or faith and confidence. A covenant is an agreement, commitment, pledge, or promise. In other words, all marriages fail because the people in them don't keep their promise. That's the bottom line. All marriages fail because the people in the marriage don't keep their promise. There may be reasons that they felt justified in not keeping their promise, but you made a promise when you got married. You, men, you took a woman out of her home. In many cases, because you had children, she had to leave her job and her career. Uh, you made her change her name and leave her neighborhood and, and travel off to distant places. You do all kinds of things. And why would anybody be willing to take a risk like that with you? Because you said, no matter what, I am always going to be here. I promise. All marriages that fail, fail because somebody doesn't keep their promise. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. And I'm going to read a lengthy passage, but the purpose of this is to give you an idea of how important a promise is to God. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I'm childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram continued, look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. My heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him, this one will not be your heir. Instead, the one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars, if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. And Abram believed God, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I'm Yahweh who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? And he said to him, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all these to him, split them down the middle, and laid the pieces opposite each other. But he did not cut up the birds. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And as the sun was setting, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, your offspring will be foreigners and a land does not belong to them, and they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. You will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. In the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire, part and a a fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Now, you might be reading that going, what in the world does this have to do with marriage? Well, God had made a promise to Abraham, a covenant. And that promise included things like numerous offspring. That's what he promises a man that hadn't yet had a single child. And the possession of Canaan, ultimately. 
But God confirms this promise to Abraham in the strongest possible terms. By the way, the word covenant comes from the Hebrew word brit, which has a wide variety of applications, but basically has as its origin to cut, and it's between two business, uh, and, and, and this is what Adam Clark said, between two businessmen, a covenant is a contract, in a country, it's a constitution. Between two nations, it's a treaty. The best single definition is a covenant is a legally binding formal expression of intent. In Abram's time, there were several types of covenant, including a covenant formalized by eating together, covenants of bread or salt, but the most binding of all covenants was the covenant of blood, formalized by passing through the divided halves of sacrificial animals. It was this covenant God made with Abraham, and the passing between the divided parts of the victim appears to have signified that each agreed that if they broke their engagements to submit to the punishment of being cut in half. So Abraham says, God, how do I know you're really going to do this? And God tells him, put the animals out there. Cut up the bull, cut up the sheep, cut up all those things. And who passed through those in the form of a fire pot and a torch? That was God. And God was basically saying to Abraham, if I don't keep my promise, may I be cut in half or slain in the same way these animals were. That's how serious a promise is to God. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, it says, Know that Yahweh your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his gracious covenant loyalty for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commands. In, chapter, in Psalm 105, verse 7, it says, He's the Lord our God. His judgments govern the whole earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the promise he ordained for a thousand generations. In God's eyes, a covenant or a promise is a very serious thing. He goes on to say this, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to keep it because he will require it of you and it will be counted against you as sin. That's Deuteronomy chapter 23 and then and again in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. When you make a vow to God, don't delay fulfilling it because he does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow. Better that you do not vow than that you vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth bring guilt on you and do not say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry with your words and destroy the work of your hands? Well, wait a second, are you saying, preacher, that God doesn't want anybody to get divorced? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Now, if that's already happened and you're way down the road, you can't do anything about what you did back then. You can only do something about what you're doing from this point forward. But God never wants anybody to get divorced. The only exceptions to that is to protect the innocent. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. Jesus is speaking. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In Matthew chapter 19, Some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two will become one flesh, so they're no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, a man must not separate. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command his 
uh, us to give divorce papers and to send her away. And he told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts, but it was not like that from the beginning. And I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I command the married, not I but the Lord, a wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to leave his wife. But I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she's willing to live with him, he must not leave her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he's willing to live with her, she must not leave her husband. For the unbelieving husband is set apart for God by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is set apart for God by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be corrupt, but now they are set apart for God. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. For you, wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Or you, husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? And the point that I wanted to make with all of that is, according to the Lord, there are two exceptions to the rule, if you get married, you stay that way. One is if your partner will not be faithful to you. God doesn't require you to be the victim of that partner. The second is, if you're married to an unbeliever who doesn't want to live with you, there's not much you can do about that, and it's not your fault. But apart from those two very specific circumstances, God expects His people who make a promise to stay married. And people come and say, well, I just didn't know it was going to be this bad. I, and, 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 I, and, and nothing about my expectation. I didn't make a promise to say that, that if this happened, I'd stay. Oh, you didn't? Do you remember the vows? For richer or poorer. For better or for worse. In sickness or in health. Till death parts us. The promise you made before God, if you go back and review it, covered all of the bad things that might happen and make you think that maybe the best thing for me to do is just get out of here and try it again. But if you do that, statistically we know this, if you do that, you will go find another flawed human being who probably in many cases is similar to the guy that you were attracted to the first time or the gal you were attracted to the first time. And you will struggle with them as well. Only it'll be easier to say goodbye this time because you've already been through the process and know how it works. And then we end up going from one to the other to the other to the other. Hoping that we can find somebody that makes us happy. And by the way, if you're waiting for somebody else to make you happy, you'll never be happy. Amen. Beyond all of that, you made, them, you made a promise. Well, we went to the judge and we told him we have irreconcilable differences. Judges, according to the Lord, don't have the authority to grant a divorce. Jesus said this, what God has joined together, man must not separate. So even though it's legal, doesn't mean it's biblical. Which standard do God's people live by? God's people, regardless of the difficulties they experience in the process of their marriage relationships need to begin with a constant affirmation of the covenant. You promised. You're expected to keep the promise. And if you'll start there, 
If that's the starting point, if divorce is not even in our vocabulary, it's not even an option for us, then you can use all the time and energy that you might have used planning an escape to try to figure out how to make the situation you're in better than it has been. And that is the starting point, isn't it? Getting God's people to understand that the power that makes it possible for people to live together for 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 years or more isn't because they just lucked up and managed to find a perfect partner. It is because even when it got tough, they both chose to keep the promise. Amen? Amen? Let's stand to our feet this morning.